So essentially, the the mind is I I know we've talked about it before. Uh, we're smarter. The, the unconscious mind is smarter than we are, basically. I mean, it's fully aware of all the things going on. I know, uh, like a good example is marketing mis is misleading sometimes. We tell people so like I eat three cheeseburgers a day and it made me gain a hundred pounds. And so I'm, but I want to lose a hundred pounds, but I still want to eat three cheeseburgers a day. And the unconscious mind is looking at you, going, "Well, that's not going to happen. It didn't work the first time." Right. So that it probably just ignores that. <laughs> like, you know, it works great for maybe date, uh, um, nutritional sites, weight loss sites, saying like, "You can have all the food, you know, that got you sick, but you can have it all and be well and, and lose weight." Right, and that right there would be something to try to do. That would it would it not? That would encourage us to break rapport, right? Especially when you consider the fact that uh, that, for example, like which we've we've spoken about before, like cravings. If you're if you are physically and psychologically in in very good health, like great health, what we consider you have a high functioning body, you will crave things based off what the body needs, not based off of like a sugar addiction. It will crave things because the body knows that a certain thing or mineral or whatever it is that it needs is in a certain food. And it knows that it's in that food, so it will make you crave the food. So that's like a natural way of a craving working. And so this is a good example because then if in that specific reference, like the they're saying, oh, you can have all the same foods you usually do and still lose weight. If you take that at face value and you really believe that you essentially and the body knows that you're not right it you've that in and of it that process in and of itself breaks rapport because the fact that you just believe that that's true and the body all of a sudden is like wow you're an idiot like that that's not true and so it be and it just enhances the fact the distrust that already was pre-existing so and that that example like you were saying like uh the body will sometimes uh give you a sensation what it really wants especially if there's a high functioning body and we do see this uh today in women when they're pregnant Mm -hmm. um they'll say like i hate chocolate and all of a sudden i love chocolate and they're not thinking about what's in the chocolate Mm -hmm. something that will modulate or their hormones or shift their hormones which are changing when they're pregnant or something that might help their liver or gallbladder they they want pickles. They want something fermented, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they don't make the association that the body is saying, "Hey, I've got this other person growing, and I need something." And I think the important point there is a high functioning body has had better access to usually higher levels of diet, higher levels of food quality. That's how they help get a, a functioning body. So people say like, well, what happens like the woman is pregnant? Well, sometimes the unconscious mind is going only by what you've, you're used to eating. So it's sit there saying like, well, I just need proteins. I, I, I guess it's Joe's Burger Shack, you know, and maybe Joe's Burger Shack is not the quality of food is wanting, but that's the only reference it has. Right. And so a high functioning body basically, which means that mind would have spent time uh, to maybe survey what is available as food quality wise and make higher functioning choices. Correct. Right. Because then you have to consider like the, it's interesting when you consider that. And also um, 
can sound strange as well. I realize when when you say something like, "Oh, your body knows there is this particular thing in that food," and it's like, "Well, okay, how is it doing that? That doesn't make any sense." So the reason it's doing, and also you have to remember, is we again work off of association, which means when we think of a food, we can measure a physiological reaction because of the fact that that food, the thought of the food, the image is associated with it, the sounds of memories when you've eaten it before, the taste. Uh, feelings that you were have that you were having the day in which you ate it that one time the weather all these other things as well as it's associated with when you ate the food the body's co- interaction with the food chemically is also associated to that memory and to then to that food symbolically and so because it has that connection the body knows when you think of that food it knows chemically what's in the food because those were all associated to each other so and and that is the point as well because you only can associate to what you've experienced before if your body has never been exposed to a higher quality version of what it needs how is it supposed to know any better to pick a different one because it's not going to be able to magically know what's chemically in a food by looking at it it doesn't work that way it has to make the association with this is what it looks like this is what it tastes like this is what it feels like this is and this is what's chemically in it because we've eaten it before. We know that that's what's in it. And so you're right. So if, if all they've ever eaten is is a very, very poor diet through their whole life, their, they, their brain, their body has no association to a higher quality version of finding certain things like proteins or certain vitamins or certain minerals or fibers or whatever it is that it may need in a particular scenario. So then all of a sudden it will just crave what it knows has in it, even though it may know it, it can come at a cost. So that's kind of interesting because that would bring up the point, like we're always telling people, never eat when you're stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, when we're stressed, the sympathetic nervous system elevates, uh, and that actually turns down digestion. It turns up fight or flight, but it actually turns down digestion. So our, the the basically the quality or the n- nutrition we get out of the food will even be degraded by that, mm-hmm. for one. The other thing is this fight or flight will also then make associations to types of foods that help us deal with quote unquote whatever that stressor is at the time and I find that interesting because with that is we're basically saying is like then not only food quality but frame of mind and how much stress and everything that has a part when we're eating Correct. as to what we're going to get out of it or not right uh, yeah because those are all made um those are all associated with it so the the emotional state that you're in when you're eating the food is associated to the food every single time it happens and the more times you do it the stronger the association and so that's that is very true so we those will you have to consider again your body being this whole one functioning unit when it comes to something as simple as eating a food because of the fact that every single part of you is involved with that process mentally physically and otherwise it's it's all a part of it especially when you consider how strong the gut brain axis is how strong the microbiome connection is to the brain because that biome is going to have a direct interaction with specifically food because we're talking about food it's that is going through your digestive system right through essentially where the microbiome is going to have direct interaction with that food which means that there's going to be a massive connection between your brain and that food and this makes sense because we know the brain-wise, speaking of the brain and performances, the brain itself uh, struggles usually only because of nutritional or epigenetic deficiencies. 
And I bring that up because we hear a lot about being mindful, being present. We've talked about that before. And is it possible to be mindfully present in the moment? I mean, so being mindful and in, in being present, you're, and you're asking, like, can you be mindful and present at the same time? Like, at the same time. So essentially to be mindful of something, like, let's give a... an example just to make this really clear if you're being mindful of a person that you care about and you're being you're being mindful of them in a moment and and through that which we usually get the example you went and you did something you got them you got them something or you made a gesture of appreciation and and that came from being mindful of them did any part of that process involve you being hyper aware of your present reality it wasn't it was a thought process of prior events in the past about the person that you have associated to the person that then made you mindful of them because in that moment you were mindful of them literally just meaning you were thinking of them you were thinking of them uh, in that scenario especially in a very positive light and through that then it it all it uh, caused you to change your behavior to choose to change your behavior being present Though that is a different process because that's becoming that's becoming immediately aware of what is happening in the current moment. I guess the the really really distinguishing uh, value here or variable is the fact that being mindful is a conscious process and being present is an unconscious process. So uh, flow state is a perfect example of the learning state. That is a, a, a psychological phenomena that happens. Uh, it's also where we get the phrase time flies when you're having fun because you when you get into the flow state you completely lose track of of essentially time and how it's passing it can move faster slower it in drastic values and in that you are that is a very um unconscious process so uh when people are in flow state for example and they're giving a speech and they're they're in flow state. You could then stop them in, in the middle and then ask them what they just said two seconds earlier, and they couldn't tell you because of the fact that they can't consciously remember it because they weren't consciously deciding what to say. It was an unconscious process. Being mindful is you consciously daydreaming about a certain thing and being mindful of a certain thing. It can be with concerted effort, not necessarily you know you just willy nilly. You're just sitting there bored and then daydreaming but but that's essentially what it is you are going in with a conscious intention to consciously think about a certain thing being present is unconscious and technically speaking you can't really do both at the same time although you can also argue because being present is an unconscious process it never stops but this is also the 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 detail that i think is important here is although you could argue that i wouldn't call it being present because of the fact that you're not doing it with concerted effort. You're doing it because it's a basic bodily process. Your body is always going to be aware of what's happening around it. That That is unavoidable. It's always going to do that. It's built to do that. And so because of that, it is it is always present in the moment. But that doesn't mean that you are always present in the moment. Except, you, for, except for maybe children. Correct, because they're before. they're in theta in the in the uh, in the imprinting phase between zero and seven years old. They are constantly in theta, which means they are essentially in that flow state all the time. They never come out of it until they get older, and then and then they start to switch out of that and to the point where they can still get back into it, but they're not in it all the time anymore. Which kind of makes me laugh because some I always call them little people, but that's like the kids is 
is that sometimes you'll ask little kids, like, you know, what were you doing or did you see that? And they're like, what? I don't know. And then later they can re- they can tell you. Right. So, I mean, which means they're there, mm-hmm. but they're, like you say, they're so present in the moment. Right. So, basically, people can be present. People can be mindful. Doesn't mean necessarily that they are both. No. They can be they can be mindful and not be present. They can be present and not be mindful. And so to say that, can we suggest that the mind that there's various degrees of mindfulness or presence? Yeah, there I mean it's a sliding scale. It's not like you are being absolutely present right now and you are being absolutely mindful right now. It's there is it is a sliding scale that is dynamic. It can it can change over the next couple seconds and so it's you know it it is it can fluctuate and i would honestly say it's very rare for somebody to go 100 100% one way or the other so usually we're somewhere in the middle and it can fluctuate leaning towards one side or the other at any particular moment and although it is technically true you can't be in a specific moment you cannot be both present like fully present and fully mindful you can still be a, a present and mindful person because of the fact that like everything, like all bodily processes, we are designed to go through phases and to fluctuate, to be a dynamic thing that changes and moves, which means that in this particular example, we also are made to do that as well. The most mindful people in the world can be very present at times when they need to. And if anything, it enhances how mindful they can be in when it comes to their expression of their mindfulness because of the fact that being present in the moment will... Uh, drastically increase the detail and perception that they have of like for example in the example I gave of a particular person because if they can be very present with that person when they're around them it will enhance their ability to be uh, mindful later on about the person Mm -hmm. because they have more to work off of they have greater association stronger association to the person because of that well that leads right into the next thing I was going to just bring up or point out. So then basically how perceptive we are, how aware we are, how willing we are, that actually affects our ability to quote unquote be mindful or present. Right. Because like I said, most people are in the middle that it's not necessarily because it's a good thing. That just means that people mostly are. People, uh, it's it's kind of this weird balance where people end up in this in this middle state where it's not really much of either, and so it becomes essentially they become more like what you could really consider as like a drone. I mean, really, they they don't they can also, which is funny because they're not very present at times, it, it, which is, is again a limitation of their perception and their awareness of things can impact their memory. Because of the fact that we remember things most strongly to uh, whatever has the most associations and the strongest associations. If you're not very present in a moment, how do you expect to remember the moment very well? You know, so it's it, it, it affects these things. And that memory in and of itself affects your ability to be mindful. Because to, to be mindful in and of itself, like I mentioned before, is you're accessing prior memories. And then through that, you are consciously embellishing and uh, and altering and making choices about your behavior through those memories and to do that you need to have the memories and the more detailed memories have and the stronger the memories are that will essentially enhance your ability to be mindful so it is i would definitely say that your ability to be present or mindful are essentially completely dependent on how on the on your ability to be aware and your levels of perception i I bring this and we tie this back in and I encourage some of you who haven't is go back and listen to previous episodes because 
as we build upon this, the importance of the mind is understanding, like we're talking about today, if we're going to create higher functioning health, a higher functioning body, um, part of this mind awareness, presence, um, willingness, we, we talk about how we bring up memories or how we make changes uh, to part of our things are so important because how can we how can we acquire how can we attain a higher level of health if we are not aware of the options or the things we need to do or the things that we could we say rewrite rewrite the script our health script into something better the mind is a core at this if we don't have that how would we elevate it right so you're essentially saying you know how would uh how would we essentially increase our ability to attain a high functioning body and improve behavior and everything so and make changes that we need to to allow that to happen so to do that i mean we need to essentially recognize the fact that again it is a whole unit and the same way that dysfunction starts in the head to put it simply getting back to a high functioning body will also start in your head because the fact that it it is going to require you to change your behavior you need to all of a sudden now behave like you will when you have the high functioning body because to attain it you need to essentially act as if you already have it because that behavior those habits are exactly what are going to get it for you and so the biggest thing there is making sure that we can recognize which you've even kind of alluded to is uh, like our perception for example is a huge um, thing about that and, and something that can they can hinder us potentially if it is not set up in a way that will allow us to notice and be aware of the things that we need to to help aid in creating the change that we want to make and and that's that's taking into a part like the ras right the reticular activation system uh, that is uh, like the most evident when you like buy a new car and all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere that's the ras all of a sudden it's a filter essentially of your perception and of course it affects more than just you know more than just that example it's it's a it affects your overall perception of multiple sensory inputs um so kind of like if you kind of the same thing would be like if you start eating better food you're all of a sudden going to be aware aware or be more perceptive of where better food is around you all the time. Correct. Like all of a sudden you'll 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 notice like if you start like if you started going to a different store, like if you started, you know, instead of shopping like getting your groceries, if you usually get your groceries at a Safeway or King Supers or whatever it is, like your basic grocery store, and then all of a sudden you want to go for healthier options, you want to have better access to organic foods, whatever that is, and you start going to like a Sprouts or a Whole Foods or whatever it is, uh, natural grocers, you will all of a sudden start seeing them everywhere because of the fact that before you were filtering them out of your perception. And so you weren't noticing them. And then all of a sudden you'll realize like, oh, there are way more than I thought there were because of the fact that you just weren't paying attention to them. And it's not, again, which makes it sound like it's a conscious thing, but it isn't. Because again, the unconscious mind is the thing that's going to get you the goal and operating the RAS like that is partially what it, what does that. It, in that sense, almost, it's like you set the direction of wanting to get to a certain goal your unconscious has a profound awareness of all of these subtle things that are going to be a part of getting you to that goal. And so it will then use that to control your RAS to then 
essentially influence what gets filtered and what doesn't get filtered and what, and what is allowed through. It will then control your perception to only give you the things that you need to help you get to the goal. Which brings up an interesting point. Touchback is something you said a little while ago as we started this was that of emotions. Uh, so what part do emotions play in striving for a high-functioning body? Because it would my take on this is that sometimes emotions could serve us for a positive or could they not possibly be a negative? They definitely can be because uh, this this also gets into the complexity of, of when we consider just the emotions in general and how they generally impact this process of, of trying to achieve what we can consider a high-functioning body, really getting to the point where you are reaching or, or starting to move towards what we would consider optimal function. Um, and so generally speaking, the way that, that influences it, yes, it could be good or bad and a mix of both. Because then we have to get consider strategies like I mentioned before. You have a strategy for every single emotion that you could possibly emote. And that strategy essentially dictates when you will experience the emotion and how you will experience the emotion. And so... And again, it's not just one. It, it essentially usually will come with some auxiliary strategies, more so in, in the sense of how you would experience it, for example. Um, but just to keep it simple, you have a strategy for each emotion that you could possibly experience in each emotional state. And through that, if you have what we would consider a dysfunctional strategy, for example, that can greatly hinder your ability to make the changes that you need to make. And even if even after, for example, you get pretty close to achieving what you would consider, you know, a high functioning body in the sense that you are, you are functioning close to optimal and yet you still then have maybe not the best strategy for anger, for example, uh, that may mean that all of a sudden you could be, we could take someone in your position that has a much healthier strategy. We could put it for, for experiencing anger and, they could still be triggered to have the emotion. However, potentially, what if your strategy is dysfunctional in the sense that you experience anger in a way that is obscenely intense and all-consuming, and it completely obliterates your self-control? But the other person has a much healthier one where they can experience the anger, they can resolve it, they have self-control, and they can, they can process and then move on. The difference there is that all of a sudden you too could be living uh, the same life, except for the fact that you, if you have this dysfunctional strategy for this one emotion, all of a sudden that means that when you get triggered, even though it may be the same intensity of trigger as the other person, you explode. And so all of a sudden it becomes very difficult because now we're talking about how it impacts your relationships, which is a huge part of your mental health. We're talking about how it impacts your ability to create changes and develop new habits because you may get frustrated too easily or too quickly to the point where you either like, especially if it's, if it's that bad, it will make it difficult for you to continue and be motivated to continue creating and perpetuating positive habits. And it can also lead to some, uh, costly behaviors not only you know interpersonally as well as just personally because of the fact that if you're getting super super angry over this this one thing uh when you're because you're trying to change your eating habits and all of a sudden you know this one store doesn't have the thing that you need and you're so set in your habit and your pattern of getting these specific things and just this way and preparing it this way whatever it is 
and all of a sudden we throw in something new. We throw in a curveball, essentially. Somebody does something that gets in the way, or something in your life happens that gets in the way, maybe you have an injury, whatever it is, something obstructs you from performing this pattern in the way that you're used to, and then all of a sudden you get set off like a firework and you just explode. That can be very costly, I mean, in multiple ways. It can it can cost you relationships. It can cost you money. I mean, if, if especially if it means you're physically destroying things. Um, and, and as well as the fact that it will cost you time. Because now you're fighting yourself to create these changes because you have a hard time controlling yourself. You can't even control your own emotions. And it costs health. Right. You know, we know that with people we deal with with uh, diabetes or type 2 diabetes, and we monitor their blood sugar, and I know when they get upset... Or they have certain emotions. Uh, the blood sugar can elevate 30, 40, 50 points. And so it affects their health. And sometimes it takes them one, two weeks before they can get that to restabilize or come back down. Correct, right. And then, then we have to consider, again, treating the whole body as one unit and then recognizing outside of even just the mental part. Now, how is it impacting our internal environment? Physically, because you're right. Then, then we have to get into the point where, like we mentioned before, how the negative emotions in and of themselves can have an impact on you physically and can actually create a, a lot of dysfunction physically. So, mental baggage. So, people have mental baggage. Mental baggage, as I would call it, as I call it, would basically then it could trigger the emotions, and that right. emotion, like you're saying, if it was something like anger, could be inappropriate maybe for the situation. Um, so then it's basically, this is affecting their brain, their health, their function downstream, down through time, just because how the emotions are triggered or how the thoughts and stuff, as I would say, the mental baggage, how it triggers the emotions. It's true. You usually would refer to that as an emotional baggage specifically because of the fact that the key point there is the reason we call it, we call it bag, we refer to it as baggage even in and of itself we usually specify with emotional baggage because every time a person has baggage, the only reason that it's that it's important enough to give a name is because of the fact that it comes tied to a negative emotional uh, state. So because of that, it's um, it can have a huge part to play in somebody's ability to in general function on a day-to-day basis because and, and there are perfect examples of this i mean there are people um one example is a, a guy who he had a problem he was never physical with his wife or anything but he had an anger problem he would get angry over the most basic things the um for example like if you know if his wife didn't um didn't prepare his food a certain way or if you know she didn't clean uh, as frequently or when he expected her to, he would just lose all self-control and just explode. Um, and in this in this example, that, that was because of baggage. We then, you know, find out that actually it was caused by, uh, by an event when he was, or essentially a, a collection of events when he was younger that essentially led him to develop patterns and a strategy neurologically that says, if I'm not getting what I want, I can behave i can react this way with this emotion and then i'll get it and so because of that then this happened when he was five years old and then all of a sudden now when it's when he's in his 40s now all of a sudden he cannot 
you know, he can't control himself in these situations. And especially as an adult, it's a very immature reaction we would consider because of the fact that it was something that was developed when he was a kid. So it makes sense that it would be an immature reaction. But that is that obviously is a huge hindrance just in his ability to function on a day-to-day basis. And then, of course, if we then release that, that baggage, then he can function what we consider more normally, where he can maintain self-control. And if he experiences anger, it's not all-consuming. It's something that he can recognize, and if he's feeling it, it's based off of something that makes more sense like in that example specifically he doesn't get angry at all at those things anymore because he realizes those aren't even worth getting angry over but now he he feels like he gets to make a choice granted he always did he just didn't realize that he ended up making the choice originally when he was five (laughs) he didn't realize that that choice would then be the choice of behavior decades later so since the body like we talked about before the body doesn't forget it's built that way it doesn't forget so some of these reactions are important because we know that uh, strong emotions, anger, resentment, uh, sometimes even grief uh, will alter hormones, it'll alter circulation, it'll alter blood pressure, it alters digestion. Interestingly enough, if people go through extreme emotions, they may find all of a sudden they're craving different foods, uh, wanting different things. So hence then what happens in our head downstream will actually affect the whole unit the body the energy the sleep the uh, digestion the absorption how well we take in nutrients so is there a way i know you mentioned before since the body doesn't forget then it's important that we take advantage of ways to set it aside uh to compensate maybe compensate is not a good word to help the body perceive it differently um since the body doesn't forget, isn't there is a way to do that? You're referring to baggage specifically? Then, yes. Yeah, so that is kind of the point is when, we're, when we are saying, because you're right, the body doesn't forget anything. I mean, this was when we consider un, the unconscious mind as a part of this. It remembers everything. It stores and catalogs, categorizes all of your memories. Every experience to every moment, it is constantly recording. And it... And it never gets rid of anything, not at least not deliberately, you know, short of, of physical trauma and so on. Even psychological trauma will never remove it. It will simply suppress it in, in certain circumstances. Um, so there, we wouldn't necessarily say we can put it aside because this is, this, the, if we are having what we would consider, for example, a, like a phobic reaction to something uh, that's, that was created from what we would consider baggage, either a a specific soul event that was traumatic or a a set of events that that compiled together over a certain amount of time then led to you having a phobic reaction. Mm -hmm. So when we have that, we, because it is like that, we have to consider a phobic reaction is fight or flight. So when we know that, that means that the body is also perceiving it as a survival problem. Essentially, this is essentially like life or death. And so knowing that there is no way to set that aside. However, we can resolve it because again, this is like a a good example when someone is, has a phobic reaction to dogs, just in general, if you like even a little tiny chihuahua and they just lose it, they freak out and they can't, they cannot handle it with what we would really consider a phobic reaction. And if that came because when they were younger, for example, when they were really young, maybe they were attacked by a dog and then through that experience, they developed 
this perception that all of a sudden, you know, dogs are dangerous and they should be avoided because they could kill you. Now, the reason that it's like that is because of the fact that through that experience that they had when they were younger, it was traumatic, which the literal de- definition meaning beyond threshold. If it's beyond threshold, that also means we cannot process the information because to process it means to experience it and to experience it is beyond threshold, which means the body will not will not subjugate itself to do that because it knows that, especially considering survival, it's a safer option for you to to essentially partially suppress the memory in the sense of not fully process the whole event than it is to process the whole event at the cost of uh, essentially causing, literally causing psychological breakage where it's so beyond threshold that it would literally turn you into a vegetable because you, you, you would be overwhelmed. And or so, even, the, even in the sense that when you mention that, brings up a point of someone um, bringing up that memory or memory could cause a heart attack. Correct. Right. Because essentially it's it's similar to um, a good example is like PTSD, which is literally post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, one, one iconic thing about that is oftentimes they are reliving the event in question and some uh, oftentimes the severity of the emotional experience of the event can grow over time and actually be worse than it was in the moment. And so that's, that's a good example because um, it essentially is referring to the fact that you are through that emotional state, you are causing damage at some level, because even when we're talking about how those emotion, negative emotional states can cause disease in the long run, it's because of the ne- of the damage that is done in the moment and how it stacks over time. And every time you experience the emotion, you experience that damaging effect. And that also means that every time you try to go back, and if you were to try to do that, go back, process it just by reliving it, which, is, for example, like exposure therapy doesn't work very well. And the reason it doesn't work very well is because of the fact that if it really was a traumatic event, it's beyond threshold. Every time you try to do it, you're essentially reliving it and reliving the exact emotional state as well, which is completely changing your physiology. And every time you do it, you're reinstating it as if it's happening over and over and over again. And so almost similar to a PTSD. Um, kind of like what we see also like in eczema and psoriasis, uh, asthma. Correct. Uh, conditions where most of the time, initially, they're started by significant stressors. Right. Um, And then they become an ongoing issue that they have to deal with. This is the end of part two of episode four. Come back for part three, which will be the last part of episode four. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out at our email, which is the unscriptedhealthpodcast at gmail.com. That is unscriptedhealthpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can find Dr. Robert Messer on Facebook as well. And you can go ahead and post a comment there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.